What I invite you now to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. This morning is a little bit of a unique sermon because it's only covering two verses. But sometimes when you cover two verses, there becomes a whole lot more to cover because of what these two verses mean by implication. Let me begin by reading them. It's Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. These verses speak of a distressed state of mind. Um, It's a passive tense. It's a deep sadness. Um, But it's not just a sadness that just kind of comes and goes. This is a sadness that was uh, filling their hearts and something they couldn't get over. This is something Jesus has been talking about, but it's hitting them in a very, very demonstrative way. They're hit with it in terms of its finality. Jesus had said, if you look at Matthew 16, 21, he said it earlier, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This means he's talking about it at this stage in the three-year course. They're coming to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. And scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. It's like they don't have a full, clear picture of what resurrection means. They're just seeing death. This is our Messiah. He's proven who he said he was. All the prediction is fulfilled in him. We have Jesus, and now he's saying he's going to die. Something that was for Peter preposterous, reprehensible. It's not going to work. Peter's verse 22, chapter 16, took him aside. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Met by Jesus' strong and stern rebuke. You're not in the right headspace, Peter. You need to see something that you don't yet see. Incidentally, if you look at the text closely, you see that there's a gap if you have an English standard version between verse 20 and 22, and that's not a typo in your Bible. And it's not to undermine confidence in the scripture. It's just that verse 21, which was included in some manuscripts, if you go back to the original, um, you know, um, earliest manuscripts, I should say, of scripture, and they're copies of the original autographer that is scripture, um, that verse isn't there in Matthew. It's in the flow of Mark. Um, There are those verses and thoughts, but... This is actually, instead of undermining your confidence in God's word, you should be comforted that the translators are trying to be as clear and careful with the original Greek language here as they possibly can because the words of God are inspired. And so they want you to have inspired scripture. And there it is. Verses 22 and 23 is Jesus trying to drive a point home to the disciples. And that is that Though there may have been a mountaintop experience that just happened, Peter, James, and John knew about that, and though Jesus had just cast a demon out of a little boy, something that the apostles couldn't do, still demonstrating how powerful he is, 
those heaven-like experiences need to be reserved for heaven. For now, there's suffering. There's a hard path in front before you're going to get to heaven. And Jesus is going there, and he is confirming that he's going there. The argument is over. The time for discussion as to whether he's going to the cross or not is done. And he's going, he's confirming this, and it's making them sad. Peter's saying it's inappropriate, but Peter's going, I can't argue with you anymore. The disciples had proven themselves to be lacking at this point, and they were continuing to do that. The nine who were here, they couldn't exercise their faith in a way that would exercise the demon out of the boy. Couldn't do it. Uh, Jesus was saying, what's it going to be like when I'm gone? And I got a preview of this, and you kind of got a D minus on your report card. It didn't, it didn't work. You need to grow in your faith. Each of these lessons is a lesson, one that builds on another, and he was teaching lessons from the transfiguration, the apex moment where his glory was on display, heaven was coming down on the mountaintop, and they needed to learn things from this lesson. First of all, they needed to learn to listen to Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying. Hear what I'm saying. Listen to me like you're going to need to listen to the word of God. Listen, be a hearer of the word. Second, be someone who's discerning. See yourself in light of the big picture. When you hear about the fact that I got to die and be raised, see yourself in light of that. Understand my plan and my program that suffering is to be a savior for sins and you need to follow this hard path. Thirdly, be someone who exercises growing faith. Grow in your faith. And you need one for the other. Listen to the word of God. Listen to Jesus. Secondly, discern. Use that discernment by the Holy Spirit to see yourself in light of God's plan. And then thirdly, grow in your faith. Be strong in your faith. And then now here, lesson four is to muster courage in your own heart to embrace the hard path. Why do I say that? Well, that's because they were greatly distressed. That's a big time, that's big time language in the original um, Greek here. They are really, really at an apex crisis. They're drowning in this message. Why? Because in one sense, they're sorrowing over a friend who's going to die. They're going to lose their best friend. They don't want Jesus to die. But secondly, they don't want to follow him in death. That's why they fled when the Roman guards would come. That's why they, they played back when Jesus was being punished. Verse 24 of chapter 16, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, Your soul is at stake in this. Are you a true follower of Christ or not? I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be taken captive. He knew he was the son of man. He knew he was Messiah. He was using the title given to Messiah from Daniel chapter 9. And and this is now applied to him. He's applying this title to himself. And he is going to be delivered and killed. And so in like manner, 
As the master is taken, so will the servants. The disciples know that what's good for Jesus is going to be good for them. They will have to take up their cross if they truly follow him. And this takes courage to do that. It takes courage to join the hard path. It takes courage as life gets harder to keep going, to keep, to keep listening to Jesus, discerning the will of God, growing in faith. All of that are the building blocks for mustering courage to say, I'm going to keep on this hard path. This is the path of sanctification. It's the path of Christian growth. In verse 22, Jesus' announcement made the disciples incredulous. They, they didn't get it. They didn't like it. They were greatly distressed. They were, here it is, grieved. These are synonyms, synonyms pained. I don't want cinnamon, believe me. All right. They were grieved. They were pained. They were vexed. They were irritated. They were offended. They were insulted. That's how that word can be used in, um, it was used in the New Testament. They were distressed. Maybe that's the all-inclusive term. They lacked courage to face a cross before heaven. They were heartbroken and they were also terrified. The disciples had the wrong mindset. Remember Jesus rebuking Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan, verse 23 of chapter 16. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You saw me at the transfiguration and now you're losing it. You're not thinking the right way. Remember chapter 17, verse four, Peter's got the real solution here. We don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to go to the cross. Let's just do heaven now. We have Moses, we have Elijah, we have Jesus, we'll make three tents. I want to retire here. My family will be fine. We'll just stay up here. It's all good. Jesus is going, no, we've got to come off the mountain and get back to work. We've got to get the right mindset going on. I'm going to the cross and anyone that wants to follow me, come on. They're distressed. And I think it's simply the principle of putting an event above the word of God. You have to follow the truth. Um, Recently, and this has been in the news, I'm not going to make too much of this by way of a digression, but it was an event over this month at Asbury University that went on for two weeks. Some of you probably heard of it, and Fox News covered it. Um, Ben Shapiro talked about it. Um, I had heard about it in sort of the pastor talk and network, you know, that I um, read about or hear about, heard a podcast on it. And in Asbury University, they had a chapel on uh, February the 9th that just kept going. It was an extended chapel. It was young people in the Hughes Auditorium. It's a 1,400-seat auditorium. It was filled up with students, and it just kept going and became a perpetual 24-hour worship service time with prayer, with testimonies, with confession, people confessing sins to each other, and um, some preaching and, you know, some Word of God time. And they have called it a revival because the Asbury tradition is to have revivals. In 1905, there was one. 1970, there was one that was known. Um, 1990, one that was known, and probably some other ones where students have gathered and, and just continued to meet together in this worship um, environment. 
And I'm not here to judge that as students are getting together. I think that that's important for community. I think it's sort of a post-COVID phenomenon where people were saying, we're not going to leave. We want this and we want this to be ongoing and our experience together. But it became really a well-known event for two weeks because it's an ongoing 24-hour sort of um, time together where people around the country begin to travel to go be there to see what was happening around the world to Wilmore, Kentucky. I, I've never heard of Wilmore, Kentucky. 6,000 people are there. Little college town um, became populated by 50,000 travelers. 50,000 people showed up. Chick-fil-A underwrote it. I mean, they were showing up giving, you know, the Lord's chicken or whatever they call it um, to them. And, um, and, and so, it, you know, it's... It, it was probably very meaningful for a lot of people in a lot of ways, um, and I understand that. College kids are soul-searching. They're at a unique time. They don't have the same levels of responsibilities a lot of times as other people um, who have families or jobs or life. Um, you can enjoy cancel classes and just enjoy the Lord, but they're also, they're also doing business with um, their own heart. And, um, and so the president was of Asbury was cautious. I read some stuff about Kevin Brown's response and he blogged about it and just said, I don't know that I'm ready to call it a revival because you kind of have to document it in retrospect and revivals are a big deal thing. It definitely is an outpouring. It's uh, unique. Uh, My caution with those events is when things become localized geographically, like the Lord is specifically here in a unique way, that can sort of be a throwback to Old Testament, Old Covenant um, Settings where you're thinking the Shekinah glory is uniquely here, um, where the Lord, First Kings 8, um, 27, even says the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. So when they courted off the lower level for the 24 years old and younger to be there for the special blessing, it's a little weird to me. Um, they had lines uh, that were spanning back where you have to wait in line for hours to get there. Cars were parked for miles to get into a location. So it's a little different. They have a fast track line where, you know, if you were 24 and younger, Gen Z, you could get in in 30 minutes. A friend of mine blogged about it. He took his daughter there and he said, hey, don't be a hater. But, but the thing is, we have to be loving, kind, charitable, and God's working in marvelous ways um, that are, you know, might be outside of our cookie cutter um, thing, but we still need to be discerning. We need to test the spirits and think about it. And probably my biggest... Uh, uh, sort of critique on it is, you know, eventually when practically it it wasn't working for the town of Wilmore to to sustain fifty thousand people um, in you know the restaurants and what I mean it was just blowing the place up. Uh, the president of Asbury just kind of shut it down and just said, "Well, we're going to do it, you know, in afternoon settings. We'll still have the chapel. You got to be twenty four and under to show up, but we're just doing that. Got to go back to class." got to go back to work. You got to got to live life. And I think there's just some wisdom with um, understanding things in their context. In other words, experiences and events may happen and they might be as genuine as the transfiguration. The transfi- There's no more authentic, empowered, Shekinah, glorious, localized event for Peter, James, and John. But instead of it going on social media, Jesus says, don't say anything about it. Not until after the resurrection. Because the point is, is that it's about Jesus being the Savior from our sins. 
to get you to heaven, to get you to glory, not the experience. It's not experience first, it's Jesus first. Even the flow of uh, Matthew 17, look again um, at verse 9, it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision. Tell no one of the vision. It's incredible. Even earlier in verse 8, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Everything got hushed. Everything got quiet. And everything got very localized to Jesus. So back to our Matthew 17, verse 22 text. Um, they were exceedingly distressed. They had great emotion. Emotion like when people were seeing that Jesus was gone and not in the tomb. It was, it was panic emotion. And Jesus is confirming this announcement and saying he's going to take the hard path. So let me ask this question. Did the disciples move past being distressed? What kind of distress do you have in your life and how do you move from distress to courage? How do you get there? That's the practical question I want to ask this morning. And there's one way to really answer that question, and that is to look at this event through the eyes of Peter. Peter had the ultimate event at transfiguration, but he was distressed. How did he move from being distressed to being courageous? Because we know he was courageous. How do we, how do we, how did he do it? Well, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to have a conversation with Peter and just sit down and talk to him like in an interview and say, you were there, you can talk about transfiguration now. So what happened? And then Jesus did all of this and shut everything down and walked down the mountain and promised you not to say, commanded you to promise not to say anything. Then you had to be courageous. How'd you do it? Wouldn't it be great to talk to him about that? Wouldn't it be amazing to have some sort of transcription about a conversation about something like that? Well, actually, we do have that transcription, and it's the inspired book of 2 Peter. So turn in your Bibles over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is basically the distillation. It is a book of the Bible that's the distillation of the lesson that Peter needed to learn from Mount's transfiguration to being courageous in ministry. That's what 2 Peter is all about. It's how to take the hard path. How do you get courageous, muster the courage to go on the hard path? 2 Peter answers this question. How do you get over being distressed? And Peter here is aged when he's writing this epistle. Now, aged for the New Testament writer would be like in his 60s. I'm in my 50s. I get it. But all I'm saying is he was older and he knew that it was towards the end of his time on earth. Similar to Paul in... Second Timothy, especially chapter four, writing his last will and testament, I'm, I'm going to die. Um, John, the gospel writer who also wrote first, second and third John in second John, he's, he introduces himself the elder to the elect lady of her children. He's an elder. He's, he's older at that point. So he's writing, he's writing about the assurance of salvation. That's first John, very similar to second Peter, um, Timothy, uh, or Paul to Timothy. It's an older, a man talking to a younger disciple in the same way second peter is peter talking to churches talking to christians in a way where he wants to make sure that they remember these things after he's gone like when someone's dying and they tell you something it should stick it should be meaningful that's second peter he was a humble servant because he had been humbled look at verse 1 um, simeon 
um, which pronounce, you can pronounce it Simon. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the spokesperson for the 12, for the apostles, who's saying all Christians have gained an equal standing in the righteousness of Christ. We're all, we're all in Christ together. And then he goes into the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. His Look at this. His divine power has been granted to us. Here's the inclusive language. Us all. Things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which you, he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. You're going on a hard path. And I want to tell you something. You have the same salvation I have. You have the same Christ that I have. You have the same Bible. You have the same promises that I have. We're all on equal footing here as we go into this hard journey. If you'll skip up to verse 13, he says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He knows he's going to die as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, he's going to leave. You may be able at any time to recall these things. Just think of Peter. He's like trying to cushion the blow. He's like, Jesus did this to me. Jesus told me he was going to leave me and I was relying on him and I fell apart and I want to make sure that you don't fall apart. So let me arm you with the gospel, with Christ, with the sufficiency of scripture. And I want to stir you up as an old man who's getting ready to die. And I'm actually getting ready to die on a cross. John 21, Jesus predicted that verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is after Jesus had been raised, Peter had been restored to him, he says, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you were old, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's an allusion to dying on a cross, stretching out your hands. And tradition, according to Fox Books of Mar- Book of Martyrs, says that he was crucified upside down per his own request because he didn't want to die in the same way that Jesus did. Wanted to be humble. We know he did deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus because the text says he did. His departure was soon. That's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was predicted by Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He died by crucifixion. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me on this hard path, you got to be willing to deny and follow. And Peter was there. He got the right mindset. He got the right mindset. The lesson from the transfiguration was learned. But what is the lesson? Well, the lesson is take the hard path and do so at all costs. Chapter two of Peter, just to give a little bit of a survey, is an entire indictment on all the false teachers and all the false teaching that will try to get you to not take the hard path. Everything in the world that's under the devil's power is trying to keep you from taking this hard path. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, these false teachers deny the master who bought them. They deny their creator who made them. That's what that means. They're not bought with the blood of Christ. A false teacher is not saved. A false teacher is someone who is denying the God of the Bible. They're denying the master. How did they deny him? They deny him with their lives. Their eyes are full of adultery and greed. They exploit people. um, Verse 3, they blaspheme. Verse 2. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. These are false teachers who do not live with integrity, but live out of falsehood, live out of their own belly and their own desires and their own greed. And they're trying to deter people from Christ. Their motive is self with this hidden life, but their destructive habit is to take people's eyes off Jesus. How do they do that? Chapter three, they begin to build doubt in terms of the day of the Lord. They are scoffers. They, they build scoffing and people are going, oh, you know, uh, Jesus, Jesus won't return. He's, where is the day of his coming? He promised he would come back and he's not here. What's happening? So they build doubt. That's what chapter three is all about. That's what Peter is correcting, saying, oh no, just as he destroyed the world by flood, it's gonna come by fire. And Jesus will return. Be not deceived. But in the meantime, we're called to take the hard path. What does the hard path look like? Go back to chapter one of Second Peter. Look at verse five. These are the attributes of the Christian life. This is what the marathoner Christian looks like. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the hard path? The hard path is the path of holiness where you grow, where you're willing to be growing in knowledge and faith and virtue and self-control. And you're yielded to the Holy Spirit. You're yielded to God's word. You're repenting of sin and you're growing in the body life where you grow in brotherly affection with each other and love with each other. You see people as family in the church. You're not going for a quick fix promised to you by a false teacher. Do this, believe this, experience this, have this, and you're good. No, it's a marathoning commitment. It's a commitment to marathon and grow in holiness Grow in character, grow in every way that a false teacher is not. You're growing in these things in steadfastness and godliness. And there's love that's coming out all over the place in your love for one another. It's built on knowing Christ is sufficient. You know his word is sufficient. You're yielded to that and you are growing. You have the right mindset, what Peter didn't have before, but has at this point. What happens if you're not growing in that way? Um, The text goes on. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities, this is all kind of an examination process. Am I living this way? Am I on the hard path? If he lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. People can be saved and just forget about it. Obviously. They can have a lapse in their judgment 
Their head's in the wrong space. They're not thinking the right way. Peter never wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Well, someone can actually look at being saved and say that really doesn't matter. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So you're confirming, you're going back to the cross, going back to the foot of the cross and going, I know that I'm saved. I know that you called me. I know that you transformed my life. I remember that. I've been stirred up by way of reminder here and I'm going to live the Christian life now. And in doing so, I'm gonna see my way all all the way to heaven. I'm not earning my salvation. I'm proving that I am a genuine child of God. And true children of God, uh, true people, people who are true children of God will do this kind of work. They'll examine themselves, they'll repent of things, and they'll begin to live the Christian life again. For in this way, verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of that is a lead up to verse 16 of chapter one. This is the testimony. This is, this is where Peter explains how he got his head right. He was distressed and he moved from being distressed to courageous. How? Well, he recounts his experience at Mount Transfiguration and then talks about how to apply that by the lesson Jesus wanted to teach him. And you'll see this, and this is my outline within an outline. It's three witnesses that attest um, where believers must place their trust. Three witnesses attest where believers must place their trust. The first witness is the eyewitnesses. These are the eyewitnesses. These are the people that saw something at the mountaintop, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's just Peter, and he's including James and John there. We were there. And we didn't make this stuff up. That's what he's saying, first and foremost. We were eyewitnesses. We didn't follow what somebody told us as a cleverly devised myth. Nobody took us aside and said, tell people this. Now, there's no sense in which he was premature in saying what he said. He He didn't tell of this vision or ministry until Jesus was raised. But here he's telling about it. And he's saying it's not made up. It's the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus was demonstrably powerful in that moment. We're eyewitnesses of this majesty, this Shekinah glory. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, you need to know that what I saw is ama- was amazing. And no one told me to promote a lie or he- I didn't hear this from some creative source. This is Peter 30 years later recounting what he saw. It's an amazing thing that he saw. And it's so important for you to see in your mind's eye how amazingly privileged Peter knew he was to see that vision. Just like when Paul was caught up three times in a heavenly vision and he couldn't even speak about it. Peter here is speaking of a heaven on earth, heaven on the mountaintop experience that he had not been able to speak of, but now is sharing with the church. But he's sharing it in such a way to say, this was an incredible thing, but there's something even greater that you need to hear and know about. And that comes through the second witness, which is the ear witnesses. You have eyewitnesses and ear witnesses. The eyewitnesses saw the coming attractions of heaven. 
Now the ear witnesses are hearing what God the Father said in light of this vision. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory, that's speaking of Christ, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What happened? God the Father's overshadowing glory, we learned this from the account in Matthew 17, showed up. It was demonstrably powerful. They were seeing the Shekinah glory of Christ reflect off of Elijah and Moses. Peter saying, we need to build tabernacles here. We need to retire here. Suddenly, a cloud witness of God the Father comes. But this, instead of being a visual, visual demonstration of glory, this was an audio demonstration of glory where they're hearing from the very voice of the Father, thunder and lightning coming down from heaven for them to receive exhortation. And the exhortation is, pay attention to my son. Listen to my son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All honor and glory is going to Christ. And the emphasis is on hearing the word of God. Similar to how we are saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We hear and we believe. It's moving from sight to sound. If you go back to uh, the text and the description, it is kind of striking again because it says they fell down on their faces. Verse 6 of chapter 17 of Matthew, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and says, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Everything stops. It's just power demonstrations, glory and sound and all of this. And they're hearing it and they fall on their face and Jesus tells them to get up and everything stops. Everything's focused on Jesus. When they lift up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only, verse 8. What's the point? The point is that the word of God must be elevated above the experience. That's what Peter is saying. How do you move from being distressed to courageous? You have to trust in Christ as sufficient And his sufficient promises, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You have to trust him and his word to take the hard path. That's how you do it. That's how he did it. He heard from the Father, verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. God's word is God's voice to us from heaven. It comes from heaven to the inscripturated word of God. And then the Holy Spirit confirms this as truth in our lives. This is God speaking to us so that we will take the hard path. It's how it works. You say, um, prove it to me. Well, let's look at the heart witness. You have eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, now heart witnesses. This is verses 19 through 21, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Stop there. Paul, I mean, Peter again is all inclusive. You weren't on the mountain. You weren't with James and John, those brothers. You didn't have that experience, but you have Christ. We all are in Christ and you have his word. We have a more sure, fully confirmed, verse 19, fully confirmed prophetic word. 
we have the word of God. Prophetic is used here because New Testament prophets would speak um, the word of God authoritatively. But these prophets or men who were set apart as authors of scripture wrote the word of God down and it had the equal weight of authority as a prophet speaking for God. The word of God is authoritative. It doesn't just speak in terms of the future. The word of God speaks in terms of past and um, their real-time experiences, and then it does have future, and it's, but it's prophetic in the terms of its being authoritative. It is authoritative. It's the prophetic word. It's the authoritative word to our lives, and it's fully confirmed. The New American Standard uh, Version, I think, says it is a more sure or more certain word, even in comparison to the transfiguration. As certain as the transfiguration was to Peter's heart and Peter's life, the Bible The word is more sure. Why? It's more sure to us because it comes from God. It comes from God, not from man. It says, verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You do well to pay attention. Why? Because when you hear the word of God, there's a sunrise effect of affirmation that this is truth in your heart. For every believer, we have the Holy Spirit that when you hear the word of God, you you will experience a confirmation and a witness by the Holy Spirit that is like the day dawning. The morning star is like the sunshine. It's the sunshine star rising. And hopefully you like me like to see a sunrise. You like to see the, the sun shining this morning where it's a little bit lighter now for us and it's confirming, man, day is upon us. Well, in the same way, when you read the word of God, the Holy Spirit is verifying and validating its truthfulness in your own heart and in your own life. That's the Spirit's work of illumination. It's like a lamp being turned on, a lamp shining in a dark place, and like the dawning of the sunshine in your heart. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. This isn't someone's fabrication. The Word of God is not just sewn together by church tradition and church history. The Word of God is the Word of God because its origination is from heaven. It's from God. It's not someone's made up stories. It's not inspiring like um, an inspiring movie or inspiring song or an inspiring story or inspiring, inspiring historical event. This is inspired by God. It originates in the Lord's mind and it comes to us. And the spirit of God validates that in our own heart. We resonate with the truth. It's not man-made Its integrity comes from where it originates from. Look at verse 21. For no one's, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It was not man made. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, Look, even if I leave, you have the Bible. When Jesus left, I had the Word of God. I was distressed because I didn't think I had anything to stand on anymore. I needed the physical Christ in front of me to do the mission, to take the hard path. And I had to let him go, but he left me the word of God. And the Holy Spirit in our heart confirms the voice of God in our life so we can take the hard path. And Peter's saying, I'm getting ready to do the same thing that I had to go through. I'm leaving you. You can't trust me. You got to trust in the word of God. You can't trust in experiences. You got to trust in the Bible. How did the Bible come to be? Well, men were moved to carry it along by the Holy Spirit. The authors 
um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through their personalities, through their circumstances, to those particular audiences with their skill level of writing, writing as writers in particular genre for particular reasons. Um, they wrote in ways where they were moved by the Holy Spirit to do so. So God was superintending and authoring every word that was written down in the original Hebrew and Greek that makes up our Bible that is the more sure word. It was through them, carried along is the same idea that's conveyed in the book of Acts where the winds filled the sails and moved ships. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we have. This is the truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all graphe is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, breathed out, inspired. Theonoustos, it means God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed on pages of scripture, black whites, black words on a white page that are frozen for us to meditate on and know that these are our precious promises. This is why we take up the cross and the cost of discipleship. It might not mean death for us, it probably won't, but Jesus pioneered a mindset of full sacrifice to him. So let me ask this question. How long did it take for Peter to get this lesson? Did it take him 30 years? No, we know to the contrary that he got it after Jesus was raised. And Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And at that point, Peter got on mission. There was an experience that happened at Pentecost. Everybody was making their pilgrimage in from all over the world to experience um, worship with God. And the 120 are up in the upper room and the Holy Spirit's coming on them in a demonstrative way and they're speaking in known languages, glossolalia, that people, if they were from that region of the world, could understand, but other people couldn't understand. So it was almost like they were in a drunken frenzy because of all the intermix of languages that were happening in preaching the gospel. But at that point, that experience needed to turn into preaching and be anchored in the word. Look at Acts 2.14, but Peter standing in the, um, with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words, Acts 2, 37. And when they heard this, the sermon Peter had preached, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's the word of God that does the work, Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Later, Peter with his colleagues, he's, they're surviving high priests, persecution, temple official persecution and Sadducees. Acts 4, 1 to 4. As they're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was written, for it was already evening. And many of those who had heard the word and believed, those who had heard the word and believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Where does conversion come from? From being fascinated by apostolic miracles and signs and wonders that were happening back then during the apostolic age? No. The conversions that were happening, even in those earliest days, always came by preaching and by the word of God that was cutting hearts in transforming lives. Acts chapter 4, verse 21, when they heard, um, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people, uh, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Acts 4, 31, when they had prayed, the, uh, the place 
that they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Even with shaking and prayer meeting and all that, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 5.18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, pretty demonstrative experience, and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this, capital L-I-F-E, all the words of this life, preach the gospel. And when they heard this, they entered the temple and at daybreak, they began and began to teach. And when the high priest came, And those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And Acts 5, 28 picks up the story saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, was he greatly distressed at this point? No, he was up on step. I've been in prison. I'm going to preach the word of God. Put me back. Then Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. What did obedience look like? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged. What did they hear? They heard the gospel. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Peter was courageous. He had been distressed. Now he had taken the hard path. He was trusting the more sure word, the sufficient scripture. We must see that the Bible elevates the word of God above experience always. Trusting in the sufficient word of God, it'll make you brave to embrace and persevere on the hard path. The word of God is the more sure word and it will quell or quiet the distress in your life if you trust it, meaning trust in Christ.